Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Welcome everybody to the XL Podcast, where we talk to leaders in all different walks of life and business. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to the show, Danny Lee, who is C-suite advisor, financial leader, a triage officer in his own words, who's worked at all levels of business from being the CFO of a global bank to advising lifestyle brands out there in the world of outdoor sports and snow. Danny, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's good to have you here. It's a real mix, which is good, actually. These are the best conversations when somebody comes and they're exploring this range that they have in their business. They're taking problems seen and solved in one industry and looking for similar problems in others. And the world that you come from as well, I think, is fascinating. On the one hand, you have this, you are trained as an accountant who rose up to the top of accountancy in global banking. And yet you have this other life, it seems, as a snowboarder <laughs> and outdoor guy. Let's talk about the other life first. Tell us a little bit about that. What are your passions? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Look, it's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a fun ride, but uh, certainly for me, it might sort of come across um, as a little bit counterintuitive, but as an Australian, my absolute passion is snowboarding and being in the mountains. And, you know, whilst we have a little bit of snow in Australia, it's certainly, you know, not the uh, the primary sport there. You know, surfing and football is, is definitely probably the more go-to sports. But, you know, I, I discovered, uh, you know, snow sports when I was about 16. And, and then, um, you know, when I was 18, I moved to Canada and and was a snowboard instructor in, in Canada for a couple of years and, and basically lived the, uh, I guess, for want of a better term, the ski bum life. Mm. And, you know, the, the mountains just kept drawing me back and I just kept finding opportunities to, to skip uni and do those sorts of things and, and head back into the mountains as much as I could. And that's really driven a lot of my passion for the last, you know, pretty much 25 years. And, mm. you know, the segue into accounting and finance was, was really just about uh, trying to avoid becoming a lifer um, and recognizing that maybe that that was not the pathway forward for me. But um you know, it's the mountains have always drawn me back. And, you know, no matter where I've gone in the world and what I've done, you know, whether it was living in Singapore or Hong Kong or across other parts of Asia and, you know, you know, in the wintertime, snowboard, uh, mountain biking and and uh, and hiking and running through the mountains and so on. So from that perspective, just being up high, um, you know, getting the fresh air in the lungs and, and enjoying the, the thrill and adrenaline of, of gravity as much as I possibly can. The mountains are calling. There's something powerful about mountains. I'm fascinated by them. Mm. People who conquer mountains. It's very primal, isn't it? We had on the show Paul Rupert, who is a skier. I know that's a little bit of a different world, but in recent years, they've sort of come together and yeah. they've made up, haven't they? When they started off in very different camps, if you like. But we were talking about alpine skiing, you know, proper, mm. right at the top of the, you know, the, the heli skiing sort of yeah. level where you drop mm. into fresh powder. And it's mm. just that feeling in a way, it, it's extremely primal. What's it like for you boarding? Tell us a little bit about that feeling that you have when it's, really you you really feel like you're living doing it 
Yeah, I mean, I think for for most snowboarders and skiers and, and people who are really passionate about their particular sport, whether it's winter sports or or anything else, it's it's really about the fact that when you're doing it, and, and you know, speaking for myself, you know, when I'm doing it, I, I forget about everything else. You know, I'm in that particular moment, and you know, life is busy. You know, I've got I've got multiple kids and a career and all these other things that are going on around me. And at this point, you know, if I step on the board and, and get off the chairlift or get out of the helicopter or finish a hike and I strap on the board and just start rolling down the mountain, you know, everything else drops away. You're not thinking mm. about anything else. You're just thinking about that next turn. You're just thinking about, you know, what line you're going to take and being in that moment and realizing that all of these other things that you're doing in life, um, you know, really just sort of fall away in that moment. And, you know, there are simple, simple pleasures. I mean, there are so many things in life that people chase after as a sort of a pleasure hit. And, you know, in that moment, all I need is a really, really good toe side turn or a really good heel side turn <laughs> that's bottomless. And, you know, as long the as the audience I'm doing will be that, nodding, yeah, happy. yeah, I get you it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, having those moments in the forest and the mountains where mm. you have silence, um, you know, you can sit and stop and, you know, appreciate where you are and, and the gravity and the magnitude of, of, of um, the geography that you're in and the landscape that you're in and this world that we're in. And it's just pure silence. And there's mm. nothing better than that, than, than seeing, uh, having those moments of just sitting in, in silence, watching the snowfall, appreciating where you are and often being with, you know, with your mates as well. Mm. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's an adventure. Yeah. We could talk about the business of snow mm. and outdoors as well. And the trials and tribulations of the brands that have really grown up grassroots, mm. if you like. Yeah. We all are very familiar with surf brands, yeah. you know, the Quicksilvers and the O'Neills and from mm. the world of surf and, you know, windsurfing, for example, yeah. that we're very familiar with those. And all, there's a lot of literature written about surfing and, you know, mm. like the things you talked about, almost the meditative nature mm. of it. Mm. You know, catching the wave, riding the wave, all those kind of analogies. Mm -hmm. And there are the movies like Endless yeah. Summer. Yeah. But snowboarding, not so much. Is that because it's a relative newcomer or is it a different type of community? What, what's going on there? Why don't we see those kind of similar, you know, like cultural artifacts about snowboarding? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of it is, is when the sort of the sports really became um, established. Uh, you know, you think about surfing, it really captured a lot of what was happening in, you know, in particular the late 1950s and 60s. And, and that was a very different sort of counterculture period, you know, through that period of time and into the 19, earlier 1970s. And, you know, even Rip Curl's sort of logo or, or um, strap line for a long time was around the search. Um, mm. And so from that perspective, I think, um, you know, it, it sort of captured a slightly different time in the world. Uh, you know, snowboarding largely considered to have been kicked off in the mid to late 1970s. You know, Burton is, is founded in 1977 and, and you know, it had extraordinary growth through, you know, the 1980s and 1990s and, and really just exploded through that period of time. So I think it's a, just potentially, you know, when it went through its adolescence a little bit, I think, um, it, you know, and from that perspective, it changes a little bit of the, the way in which it captures people's imaginations. Um, but I think that's also changing in the sense that, you know, more and more people are enjoying time in the mountains and more and more people are sort of tapping into those moments of being up on the mountain. And, and I, I think that's, uh, 
that idea of you know the way in which people engage the sport and what it means to them and and also generational shifts you know i, I wouldn't say that i'm a first generation snowboarder by any means but i'm probably second generation hmm. and now my kids are sort of almost third generation right so they're starting to build more of that culture and um and that dna into sort of family lineages as well which i, I think helps to build that story yeah well let's talk about the origin story of snowboarding itself Mm. people are aware of Burton mm. and those in the industry will probably know of Jake Burton who yep. they'll describe as the godfather if you mm -hmm. like I mean he'll be one of many I guess at that time yep. who were pioneering but he was the you mentioned 1977 when they started Burton mm. snowboards now you've worked with Burton and advising yep. them and consulting to them yep. they've had a very interesting ride Mm. 1977 five years later he was the guy who was out there campaigning mm. to get boards onto the slopes mm. because mm. before that they were not allowed not yeah. taken seriously yeah so they would be laughed off or chased yeah. off yeah. by the skiers and then you had this explosion that really happened in the 90s i remember i lived in japan in the 90s mm. burn was huge mm. you know along with all those kind of lifestyle brands that erupted in the 90s like yeah. north face yeah. patagonia as well yeah. That there was that real tapping in the youth culture into yeah. these brands. And obviously the Olympics came, mm. Sean White, mm. you know, mm. it was a little bit edgy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a little yeah. bit different. He wasn't your typical athlete. So yeah. all that was happening at that time. And the whole thing blew up, mm. you know, they just had phenomenal growth. And yeah. I don't know where yeah. they are today, but they crossed easily 200 million in board sales and global sales and all the lifestyle brands that they have yeah. as well. It's a very romanticized startup story, isn't it? You know, if you think about in the startup world, we have the story of, you know, Stephen Woz in the garage mm. or Michael Dell building mm. computers. Yeah. It's, you know, it's in myth. Yeah. But in the outdoor world, we have these similar analogs, don't we? Yeah. Like, you know, the guy who was just kind of starting out, trying to make a better way of skiing, Yep. made this board and then suddenly his mates were saying oh i, I want to try that out and yeah. you know legend was born mm. you know we see a lot of this how, to how to what extent is it romanticized but what's the sort of reality once you sort of dig deep into these brands what do you see behind those passions and you know the early athletes and the pioneers what's really going on yeah i think you know i mean i can't really speak to you know jake's origin story and you know how they built the brand through this you know the 1980s and 1990s i certainly can you know appreciate it as a consumer because i was a consumer from the mid 90s onwards and and i think you're right a lot of these brands whether it be burton and, and some of the skate brands really exploded in the 1990s through the some of the counterculture and um you know there's a lot of stuff going on around around grunge rock and various things at the same time which they were all sort of packaged together as as um you know as a movement i guess and you know by the time we got into the 2000s you know, i mean burton was a global force in terms of overall sales and and uh you know its market share and and it still dominates in that respect and you know it's still you know the significantly you know the largest number one brand in in snowboarding um in the world at the moment in every major market so whether it be north america europe or or asia you know there's definitely other players that are, are growing very quickly or are being um sort of chomping at the heels whether that's be you know mervyn industries who own libtech and, and gnu whether it be uh Niedecker out of europe as well and the brands that he has and the incredible growth of jones snowboarding over the last five to seven years so i think you know 
there is a mythology that comes with startup companies, but ultimately, you know, how do you build that culture into a company so that it's maintainable? I mean, there's no way that, that Jake can pull or could pull the entire company along on his own. It, it's really about how he embedded that philosophy into the rest of the company and the people that he gathered around him. And, you know, the standard that, that he and Donna set for the company was quite extraordinary. And, you know, I had the pleasure of working with these guys um, a few years ago and, and being able to see you know, the way in which they engaged and the way in which they continued to sort of build that philosophy into the company. And so it's about consistency and authenticity within their brands. Uh, you know, the materials and, and the interviews that you see of, of Jake in the 1980s and 1990s is entirely consistent with, you know, the interviews he was doing, you know, just prior to his death. And, you know, and that comes from a, a very deep level of understanding who you are and what you're trying to achieve as a brand and, and and as a sport and you know that authenticity you want across uh, across everything that you do and you know i know that that burton as a brand was approached a number of times to be bought out by much bigger players um in the sports world and you know they ultimately decided to turn those down and it wasn't because of money it was because of you know their views around the culture of the brand and what they wanted to preserve and pr protect in that brand and they just didn't want that to be diluted by the big corporate machinery of, of some of these massive sort of sporting brand conglomerates. So, you know, whether it's Burton or other brands in this in this sort of space, you know, I think the, the reality is you need to really define what that, that heritage point is and what that authentic story is that you have and that mm. you can engage with your, um, you know, with the people that love your brand as well. And, and I think that's what's something that, that Burton did very well Patagonia has done it incredibly well as well. Um, North Face. Um, so the brands that we sort of have, you know, name recognition of and name recall of uh, brands. I mean, we don't remember individual products that these brands produce or put out there. We remember the story and the way they make this feel. And, you know, frankly speaking, although Nike's the big corporate behemoth in some respects, they were one of the first to absolutely understand this and, mm. and you know, their brand title or their, their their slogan just do it really captured you know the feeling of of how people felt when they put on a pair of shoes and went running and they they don't do any advertising for nike on you know what sort of foam they have on the bottom of their shoes and you know what air is in inside the shoes and everything else it's all about capturing the feeling and uh, capturing that moment of going out for a run or participating in sports and that's how brands engage with their community because they tap into that Hmm. This is tip of the iceberg, isn't it? In the sense of what we see as consumers, we see that lifestyle storytelling, the communication. Hmm. I want you to put your bank CFO hat on <laughs> for us, if yep. you like, and hmm. then look at it in terms of nuts and bolts, widgets, zeros and ones, if you like. What What is it that, say, a Burton did, and you mentioned Nike as well, and some of the the global lifestyle brands now? Patagonias mm. and North Faces. What do these guys do right from a CFO's perspective that let's say, and there have been many more failures, like a venture snowboards is one, mm. which blew up and then failed. Yeah. And there'd be many other brands which didn't even get to that level. What did mm. they not do? What was the differentiator? Because they all had passion. They yeah. all were guys who started out for the love of the sport. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. no big, you know, intention of big, becoming a, a billion dollar enterprise yeah. right yeah no i mean you're absolutely right and look you know you can't get away from the fact that some of it will be just 
out and out luck that happened to be right place, right time for some of these businesses. But, you know, certainly, you know, if I, you know, and, you know, I won't sort of uh, stay on Burton too much, but, you know, across all of these brands and, and I see this not just in the sports and outdoor industry, I see this in, in other businesses that I've advised and worked alongside. Um, if I put my CFO hat on, it, it, it's really about um, how you manage through particular inflection points in the growth of that business. And, you know, if you're a small brand and growing up, um, you, you're going to get to a point where your enthusiasm and passion for a product or a business or an industry is going to reach its, its kind of, um, in some ways, its natural uh, peak. At some point, you need to professionalize that business. At some point, you need to be starting to think about, you know, if you're a consumer product, starting to think about inventory management and the way in which you're going to grow into different markets. And, you know, if you're on the banking and finance side, you know, you're starting to think about the, you know, the cost that you have for customer acquisition, the cost that you have for, um, you know, producing product or producing services for, for the industry. So, you know, the challenge that, that I think comes through really is on the cost side in, in many respects and how to make sure that you're keeping that under control because, you know, as you grow, revenue starts coming in, money starts coming in, and it's very easy to then start being presented with a multitude of options of, of mm -hmm. what are you going to do next? Which market are you going to go into? You know, very easy to say, I'm now going to produce a line of 25 boards instead of a line of five. Or, you know, I'm going to now start producing goggles instead of um, just what I'm very good at in snowboard. So, you know, when you market map these things, you know, you often have this opportunity to say, well, you know, right now I'm a brand, a great brand in the US and Europe, and but I'm not a big, strong brand in Asia. Or I'm a very strong brand in a particular product set, but, you know, the way for me to grow is to actually increase the number of products that I might have. But you need to be very careful about that because it can seem like a great idea, but you start getting out in front of your skis or it's, you know, not really your wheelhouse around this. And you can make some fairly costly mistakes, which ultimately impact your your under or your so underlying business. So, you know, from a CFO's perspective, and you know, some of my friends in in this particular part of the industry, particularly around sports, you know, the last you know really the last ten years has about been about inventory management, quite you know being very tight around inventory management, but also how do you manage that relationship with some of these large players that have come into you know the distribution and retailing space and you know we're talking about people like amazon um you know because it's very hard as a as a brand to ignore um using somebody like amazon as a as a distribution channel but it also definitely changes the economics of what you're trying to do um and it can also change the way that you have a relationship with with distributors and and with you know the people that you've used in the past so you know, it's really about cost control, really about inventory and making very wise decisions around those options that are presented to you. Because the most fantastic thing in a, in a business that you're starting up is it's hopefully it's going to grow and hopefully you're going to get presented these opportunities and these options that you can invest and grow the business in a certain way. But ultimately, it's about making wise decisions and it's about deciding that you don't have to do everything. It's about choosing which of those things are going to be the most effective for you stay true to who you are as a brand and continue to build that uh, build that brand for the future. So let's say I'm uh, the CEO founder of a mountain biking mm -hmm. lifestyle brand. Yeah. Mainly not making frames, but making accessories and making yep. clothing. So mm -hmm. it's a big market. Let's say we're doing 50 million a year. Yeah. And most of our sales are in Europe, North America, 
you know, I started this thing 15 years ago because I love yeah. mountain biking and I saw a market which mm. was middle-aged mountain bikers. Yeah. You know, we're not skinny fit guys. Mm. So we like mm. it a little bit yeah. more, more <laughs> relaxed. <laughs> we can wear this stuff around yeah. the house. Okay. You get the yeah. picture. Yeah. yeah. So you that's your market. That's your, up. that's your avatar, <laughs> right? You're working with. Um, my problem, like, okay. So I've come to you, Dan, and said, look, you know, here I am now. Um, you know, we kind of hit a plateau. We were doing 20% growth mm. year on year up, but now it's really peaked out. Yeah. I'm aware of the supply chain issues, which are global. Everybody's facing it. Um, I want to find a new growth story. Mm. And then like you and I have a conversation, you're talking about, you know, cost management. Um, you know, you can see my eyes glazing over because I'm yeah, a mountain yeah, yeah, bike. I'm thinking. Which is the reason why um, I don't tell people I'm a CFO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's the point. Now, now what do I do? So, uh, you know, you're talking about making decisions. How would you advise me moving forward? I don't know it's, there's so much under the surface that, many variables here, right? But you know, as the CEO, what's sort of very typical in my situation? Would I have to find a CFO and kind of step back a little bit? Or could I work with somebody like you? And how would mm. that look? What, what sort of a good working partnership moving forward with that kind of situation, which is very common? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. And I mean, look, you've got a couple of different paths there. And it depends, you know, how you're set up, you know, within your operations, you know, you Probably at that point, if you're doing 20 to 50 million of sales, you've got a very, you know, a very good, you know, finance function because you're going to, you're going to need to have uh, people doing the basics there, um, and you've probably got very capable people there. And I think what you're really looking for at that point isn't so much a finance person or a CFO. It's really about a strategic advisor, uh, you know, somebody who definitely understands the numbers, but somebody who can help to distill, you know, what are going to be the key strategic next steps that you're going to take. Because look, at the end of the day, numbers on a page are numbers on a page. You know, they, they paint a story, but and it's really about trying to understand, you know, what's hidden behind those numbers. And I don't think you can ever truly make a, a decision purely based on on just the numbers themselves. And you know, I apologize to to all of my CFO and accounting friends out there, but you know, ultimately it's really how you take those numbers and how you infer mm. what that story is beyond that and, and having somebody to to, uh, to, to help you navigate what that story is and, and understand what it is that you're trying to achieve, what it is, you know, where the, those opportunities are going to be for you um, is really, really key and important. And you don't necessarily need to have somebody as a full-time strategic CFO sitting next to you for 40, 60 hours a week. This is somebody that you can you can dip into with a, a conversation on a regular basis to say, hey, what do you think, and you know, what does this mean, and and what would you do? I mean, that's that is just as important to have that sort of trusted uh, advisor and and a voice of reason as you're making these decisions, because you know whether it be a founder, or a CEO, head of division, or whatever it might be, you get so close to the detail. And it can be very difficult to step back and and understand what's what you're not seeing and, and what's in your peripheral mm. vision. So, um, you know, sometimes you need somebody just to grab you by the scruff of the neck and pull you back and say, "Hey, what about this?" And you know, maybe you're focusing on these things a little too much, um, but also you're missing opportunities, you know, on your left and on your right. And I think that's a key to to you know having these discussions and, and whether that's. You know, say for myself at the moment, whether I'm advising the CEO of a, of a stock exchange, whether I'm the CFO of a bank, you know, a strategic advisor to Burton and, you know, all of these different types of roles. Often it's about having that mature conversation of, you know, how, you know, trying to pull out and understand 
What are the objectives of that particular business or that individual? You know, what are they missing? Is there a different way that they could be trying to, to sort of peel this apple? Um, and often, you know, there are perspectives and angles that they haven't thought about or they've discarded. And, you know, you just need to bring them back and, and help them and guide them through that particular thought process. And the other piece that's important is, you know, as an advisor and, and as somebody who's growing businesses, you need to help people make their own decisions. You know, ultimately, you can't come in and say, this is what you should do 100%, that's it, and sort of drop the mic and walk away. You need to make sure that they fully understand the reasons for these decisions and that they have made that decision themselves because they're the ones that, are, you know, often have to live with the execution requirements. Um, they're the ones that need to get in and, and articulate that to their staff or articulate that to the board. Um, and believe in that because it's not always an easy process that they need to go through. So you need to really understand what that journey is going to be and why they're doing it and, and how they do that. So to come back to your example around a mountain bike accessories brand, you know, you, the first thing you do is you start looking at market mapping. You start to understand what geographies you already play in, what products you play in. Um, and then, you know, you start to see where potentially there's some gaps and you would then start to rank, you know, within those gaps, what you think are going to be the most important um, or, you know, have the most opportunity for growth. And you know, look, we're riffing here, but for me, I know as a, as a, uh, a middle-aged guy with kids and if your brand is targeted directly at me, that's fantastic. But, you know, I, one of the things I would say is, you know, forget all the 25-year-old rippers. Hmm. What about, a, a, you know, some product for kids? Because, you know, when I'm standing in a store, I've usually got two or three kids hanging off me at the same time while I'm trying to buy some accessories. And, you know, why not have something there where my kids, just like in a supermarket, the kids are always standing there with a chocolate or, or a mm. lolly for something, so begging you to buy something. Why not have the there same? There you go. You heard it here. Right? Yeah, you, ha you have, uh, have a line for kids sitting right there next to it. And, you know, and that's an opportunity because, you know, I've got disposable income. I'm buying stuff for myself. I want my kids to be passionate about the sport as well. So you kind of yeah. almost skip a, a, uh, a, I guess, a category segment of the 25-year-olds and go straight down to the- And you know, years. you're not going to feel guilty about buying it for your kids, are you? Whereas no, buying no, it for no, yourself, no. <laughs> you have to justify it. No, and you know, All that money spent on carbon. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, it, it feels better when you can uh, blame others at the same time. <laughs> the pest of power. There you go. It's somebody who understands the market. There's been a lot of moves recently in, in outdoors. Obviously, M&A is a big part mm. of this industry, isn't it? Because for the reasons that you mentioned, maybe they get to a stage where the next level, they can't go it alone. They need the mm. distribution power or the global you know, marketing Mm. now sort of a larger brand yeah nike obviously a big player in all sports mm. industries um but some interesting ones as well like katmandu bought rip mm. curl mm. which is an interesting tie-up how yep. do you from again from the cfo perspective step back a little bit mm. you know um how does that make sense because rip curl were a huge heritage brand like you mentioned yep in the scene from day one mm. how does that add up well, look, I mean, there's different motivations for businesses wanting to sell. And, you know, certainly for Rip Girl, the, the founders were, um, you know, they were getting older. I think they were in their 70s by the time the boys sold it to Kat Kathmandu. So, um, you know, they had been looking for a suitor for a little while. Um, and one thing they sort of didn't really want to do is we ship it off to a private equity company that was just going to, 
you know, you know, pump and dump the the brand, and and that was something that was important to them. And and I guess they found that kind of intellectual meeting point with uh, with Kathmandu, and and you know, at the same time, it's also a business. So Kathmandu um, offered scale and distribution and leadership and management, um, you know, to Rip Curl that they felt could help them accelerate the brand. And you know, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, you know, a lot of these brands have had. Yeah, a lot of time in the sun and, and there's been some real challenges around direct to consumer. There's been real challenges around bricks to more bricks and mortar sort of retailing, you know, opening up your own stores. Um, that was one of the big challenges in particular for, for Billabong and Quicksilver. Um, you know, so trying to get that business mix and that business model right has been really important. So from an M&A perspective, I think what you find is there are some businesses that get to a certain scale. And I wouldn't say this, this is an example of Ripco, but you know, there are other smaller businesses that get to a certain scale and they realize, you know, for them to take that next leap, they they kind of need to have, you know, all the power that comes from a VF Corp, like VF brands that allows them to have the distribution channels and the marketing sort of channels and, and everything that comes along with that to, to get them to that next level. And, um, you know, you see how a brand like Arcteryx has just exploded in the last five to seven years. Um, and that's because they have you know, the weight of a major corporate venture sitting behind them and are able to invest in that long-term future. And, you know, for small to medium-sized brands, it can be hard sometimes to to decide that you're going to invest in a particular path. It's going to take three to five years to pay off when in reality, some of these brands are living year to year um, Mm. in terms of their order cycle and everything else, because if it's a physical product, you know, there's all sorts of supply chain and, and cash flow challenges that they have. So, thinking about how they invest long-term into the future can be challenging. So from an M&A perspective, it can be around, you know, founders sort of getting to a point where they they want to move on for one reason or another. Um, it can be because of brands getting to a certain scale and just deciding they need to, to um, increase in size. And frankly, sometimes it's because a, a larger conglomerate like BF will just come along and offer money that's just too good to refuse as a founder mm. um, because they're also looking for brands that allow them to tap into the authenticity and heritage of a sport. Uh, it's very difficult to grow that yourself now. Um, you can't, it's, we were talking about this earlier, but it, it's very difficult for you to start a new brand from scratch. Hmm. Absolutely, there's the ability to, to walk into China or Vietnam and just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a new jacket range for sure. But when it comes down to trying to then market that into, into the consumer environment, if you don't have any heritage, if you don't have any authenticity, the brand will fall flat very, very quickly. So, you know, when these brands are being purchased, you know, they're not buying the product. I mean, they can they can make that product no problems. They're they're buying the story, they're buying the heritage, and they're buying mm. the people who engage and identify with that particular brand. That's ultimately what they're what they're acquiring. So, you know, they're they're very thoughtful about the way in which they do that. And and if you look at some of these bigger conglomerates and bigger companies you can see they've thought very carefully about their their customer set because they don't have all of these brands that are just focused on one particular customer segment because they end up cannibalizing each other and you can almost look at them on a pyramid and you can see that they're getting brands at each of those um Hmm. each of those customer sets and they sort of fill in the picture so that they they're ultimately they're, they're focused on the entire marketplace 
And cradle to grave as well. In some cases, they map that out the whole yep. life journey, right? Just yep, like the absolutely. auto manufacturers would do as well. Mm, mm. Okay, let's, let's just stay on products. Quick fire round, Danny. Yeah. Um, I'm going to share with you some products that have not hit the big time in the mm -hmm. world of outdoors. And we'll focus on snow for a little bit um, just to keep it narrowed down. And I want to hear your thoughts as both a consumer and a chief triage officer of why. Okay. So I've completely ambushed Danny, yeah, by sure. the way. So we haven't prepared any of this. So I'm going to just hit you with some ideas and you'll know what these are. And I want to know why, because yeah. a big part of what you do is you work with those founders and it's not just about optimizing the business, but it's also working out, you know, new products, yep. you know, helping them, you know, strategize, mm. ideate, and yep. get these to market. Yep. All right. So number one, snowboard poles. You remember those? What happened um, to those? They're pretty obvious. <laughs> what is the obvious part though? Tell us, uh, help us understand why did that fail? Because at, at the time it looked like a good idea. Well, they had good marketing. Come on. I look, I'm, I'm sure they did. I mean, but, uh, but there's, there's plenty of, plenty of marketing departments who I'm sure can say they had good marketing and that the product failed. But look, I mean, the reality is for, for 90% of what you do, if not more, uh, snowboarding, um, you, there's no, absolutely no need for, for poles at all. Um, and in fact, you know, snowboarding is about, you know, flow and, you know, and, and trying to find a rhythm and, you know, the way in which you do that and the way in which you move your body, ultimately you don't have any need for poles, um, you know, on a regular run. So they just, frankly, they get in the way. Um, and I can't imagine, I mean, some of the bales I've taken over the years, I can't imagine having a pair of yeah. poles in my hands, but, um, but look, I mean, that being said, I mean, most snowboarders who do any kind of backcountry or split boarding, side country, slack country, whatever you talk about, you know, they've got a pair of uh, collapsible poles in their backpack because when you're hiking around, it absolutely makes, uh, makes sense. And look, my best mate is a skier and, you know, he'll tell you if he was listening to this podcast, what are you talking about, Danae? I mean, every time we hit a flat spot on a cat track, I'm always handing you my pole so you can There you go. Mine. There is a market. Um, yeah, <laughs> but just they didn't know the avatar very well of who they were targeting. <laughs> Obviously not you. Yeah. Most yeah, of yeah. the time. All right. Mm. Snowboard poles are out. Mad Jack's boots. Do you remember those? They were snowboard boots that you could clip in or they were like the bindings that you could clip in to skis. Mm. So you could mm. wear your snowboard boots on yep. skis and obviously for those that are listening that are not familiar they're, they're very different <laughs> entities right whatever happened to those well look i, I mean to be to be fair I, I never i never actually tested the product i think it's probably a little bit before my time so don't let the gray hair fool you but um look i think uh you know in any sport as they're developing and they're progressing people are trying different things and you know whether that was uh monoboarding uh for a little while and and, and so on it's um, you know, I think some of these things just sort of fall by the wayside and, and the good ideas distill and rise to the top. And, you know, I don't think, you know, whilst I laugh, I don't think these are, these are bad ideas per mm. se, because at least people are trying, right? I mean, they're trying to innovate these sports and you never know which of these ideas at the time are the ones that rise to the top. And, you know, ultimately, you know, you need that progression and you need that innovation to, to help drive and, and push ideas forward. And, you know, snowboarding, for example, for a long time has been trying to figure out how you can get the convenience of, of step in skis, like clip in bindings for skis and how you get that on the boards. Cause traditionally they, there's been a, effectively a sort of a two strap uh, binding setup for most of the last 25 years. And, 
you know, in the late 90s, um, Shimano and, and a few other brands tried to have step-in bindings and um, some form of step-in binding. And, you know, they, they, they'd failed at that time for a bunch of different reasons. One is marketing. Another is just the effectiveness and the way it sort of um, it actually worked and so on. But, you know, Burton have certainly, you know, Burton and, um, and Flow Bindings have both, both come out with um, pretty, you know, pretty damn good options at this mm. point. You know, the, the step-ons from Burton uh, are an incredible product. Um, you know, the way in which they iterated and found a, found a way to effectively create um, a, a clip-in binding much the same way as you have skis is, is incredible. And, you know, the coming back to Jake, the innovation iteration they had, they, they have an innovation center at their, at their facility in Vermont and they, and 3D printers there. And effectively what they were doing was, was, uh, you know, mocking up a binding and pretty much the next day, Jake was up the mountain with his team, writing that binding and testing it out and then mm. giving the feedback. And then within sort of 48 hours, they'd have another version. Um, and okay. when you walk into that room, happens, there's actually yeah. a whole pile of bindings over in the corner that were the various versions along the way. Scraps of bindings, broken, yeah, smashed, were, to they destruct. Were, they were yeah. using, you know, exacto knives to cut pieces out and do yeah. different things. So, I mean, the innovation is definitely there. And, and I know that flow bindings have come up with uh, their own sort of version of the product as well, which uh, a similar sort of thing, a very easy way to get in and out of the bindings, which, which leverages off their IP. So, you know, it, I think... You know, to come back to Mad Jacks, I mean, the, the idea is sound in terms of, you know, the innovation and the progression, but, you know, ideas fall by the wayside along the yeah. way. And it, look, it's always easy to criticize in hindsight, always easy to, to laugh about it in hindsight. And, you know, by no means do you get every decision right. And by no means do you, you know, perfectly pick the right strategic direction for a brand by any means. Absolutely. What else you got on your list there? Well, I've got That'd one more, <laughs> and I, I'm sure this one. I know you, you're absolutely right about the idea, and I'll put it out to the the listeners as well. And if you're in the business of creating products for that market, is there's not such thing as a bad idea. It's mm. all about the execution, and you've seen that with the testing of the bindings, for example. That's a lot of execution. Mm. That is just constantly test, test, test. Yep. to get that right. And that's so important, isn't it? Because the idea does not sell itself. I'm sure if you look at the early snowboards and let's say they failed, yep. let's say that never happened and they never put in that, mm. that graft that they put in to make that yep. work. People yep. would look back at those things and think, come on, yeah. like, what a silly idea. They're kind of like the fish-shaped ones, like the early skateboards, weren't they? And some of them yeah. even had like a, a tether, wasn't it? Like a, I don't know what it was, like some sort of handle on this yeah the early, and early look ones, i mean right? that heritage is part of the the build of the brand and if you go and look even at some of the marketing that's done around these brands now i mean they really draw down on that early early stage heritage mm. and, and you can you can buy that same board that you see from 1977 with jake which is almost like a fish fish tail sort mm. of board with a, a rope off the top and rope, basically there's it. rubber map rubber mats where you, you would stand on the board and say so you can buy something very similar now because you know, the idea is very pure and it's mm. very it's very much about getting to the origins of the sport. I mean, you can spend thousands of dollars on equipment, but at the end of the day, what do you want to do? You want to go downhill and, that's, and that's what it's all about. Um, so have you ever written one of those? Uh, yeah, I have. I have. What's it's, it like? <laughs> it must be pretty heavy, right? Uh, look, it's not as, I mean, once you get rolling, it's, uh, it's mm. not so bad, but it definitely, it, 
it highlights to you how much you rely on your bindings when you are riding on a regular snowboard because there you, go. you know you try and you, you try and plan to turn and you realize you've got nothing sort of on you've top got the of rope that's it that's not going to hold you together no, all right absolutely. last one and then we'll mm. round up and we'll talk about the challenges moving forward I don't know if this one comes from the world of ski or snowboard. Yeah. It's sort of in the middle. You know where I'm going? Snow feet. Do you remember uh, those? Are yeah. they still going? I remember them coming out in the 90s. Those little, I don't know, they were like mini Almost skis, like I think. Mini they? skis. I mean, I mean, I think that was tapping into the rollerblade kind of crossover market. And, and look, you still see a little bit. You still see a little bit of this stuff around. I mean, particularly in Asia, you see a lot of it in uh, in Korea and Japan. Um, but uh, look, I mean, I think this is just sort of niche variants in, in a sport. You know, there's also uh, snow skate um, as well, which you sort of see, uh, you know, around the place, which is effectively a skateboard with a with a small ski sitting underneath. And I mean, look, what the guys do on it is incredible, but. Um, it's 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 a fairly niche part of the snow sports industry, without a doubt. I love the fact that they're really pushing the boundaries and yeah of that. You know, snow skate. It's like, yeah. why not? Let's try this out. Yeah, yeah. And it exactly. may work, right? And you know, if they can kind of get that traction and a little bit of mm. process and professionalize it, that could yeah. become a thing. Yeah, look, it could. Nice. I mean, look, we, we've seen surfing, you know, now in the Olympics, snowboarding's in the Olympics. So these sports are all trying to find their, their pathway. And, you know, one thing I would kind of wanted to just double back on in terms of the bindings and the step-ins, I mean, one of the big challenges is, you know, look, being on a mountain and snowboarding, yes, it's fantastic, it's fun, um, but you're in some pretty hairy situations sometimes. And, you know, that can even just be how fast you're going down a groomed run. I mean, you don't want a binding to fail at that point in time. Mm. You don't want your board to pop off because if you slide and hit a tree, then it's game over. Um, and that's just in a groomed run. I mean, plenty of us have put ourselves in positions where the difference between getting it right and getting it really, really wrong is not that uh, not that big. So you want to be able to trust your equipment. And I think you know brands like Patagonia, brands like North Face and Burton and others have not only built a great story and heritage and culture, but they're also very well known for the quality of their products because at that point you do not want things to fail because unfortunately bad things happen when they do. So, you know, that's why there is a pile of broken bindings in, mm. in the, uh, in the Craig's workshop at Burton because they wanted to make sure they got it right. Cause at the end of the day, they, they don't want people to get hurt either. They've, they've taken the spills for you, right? You know, no, that definitely, much. definitely some crazy guys as well who don't mind doing that can mm. bounce back mm. up. Yeah. All right. Rounding up, there are there will be listeners out there who are in that industry mm. and they may be consulting to working for raising mm. funds for or they may be the founders that you mentioned the ceo's c-suite and yep. the problems we've talked about today will resonate with them mm. now what i want to ask you at what point does it make sense for them to talk to you you know what would be the typical problems that they're facing just so it's worth everybody's time yeah you know like are we big enough are we small enough you know are we at, at the right stage in our growth for it to make sense to work with somebody like you yeah look i mean it, it all comes down to the type of conversation you want to have and you know i advise to start up companies and i advise to mature you know mature businesses that have been around for a long time and in, in very mature industries so you know, really, you know, my advice is, you know, having a problem shared is a problem halved. And I know it's a bit of a trope, but 
you know, when you are starting businesses or when you're at a point in a business, you know, often it's very difficult to get the right sort of feedback, even from within your own company. You have all sorts of problems around people telling you what you want to hear and, and those sorts of things. So having a trusted advisor, an external set of eyes is very important. It doesn't matter whether that is, you know, you're still doing a friends and family raise and, and round for your business and it's very small, or whether you are the CEO of a, of a bank or, or whatever it might be and everything in between. But, you know, it's really about understanding that it's good to get different perspectives. Um, and, you know, where I guess I probably specialize is, is really um, trying to help businesses take that next step in terms of their growth and optimize their model. And yeah, look, some of it's, you know, CFOE accounting financey stuff for sure, but it's also really about trying to understand how they're going to grow that business and what the opportunities are that are in front of them. And more importantly, you know, most businesses have uh, an abundance of choice in particular about how they're going to grow their business next. And it's really about how to distill those decision points down to something that uh, makes sense for the future and for them, you know, to, to really feel comfortable and confident with that. So, you know, I think at any stage in that process, it's good to have a trusted advisor you can have a conversation with. And whether that is you know, once a month, once a week, or to have somebody that is, I guess, more available and more on call, whether that's in a permanent full-time capacity or whether it's, you know, something else is really important. And, and somebody who's been there and done that as well is, um, you know, can bring their perspective and bring different industry perspectives as well, because you do have a little bit of an echo chamber in every industry, whether it's banking and finance, whether it's, you know, the sports and outdoor industry or otherwise. You know, you need to start having crossover of ideas between these different industries, which is really important because, you know, you bring, you know, a different idea to the table, you bring a different lens to the table um, and, you know, you're able to articulate and understand problems a little bit differently because you're not trying to solve them in the same way that everybody's been solving them in that industry for a while. And, you know, and I guess lastly, you know, having the experience across different geographies, because again, you have the same issues that pop up in North America, for example, the same issues in Europe. But if you're a brand who really wants to try and tackle getting into the Asia market or how to grow their brand into other geographies, it's a very different sort of problem statement. And the way in which you go about that from a cultural perspective, from a business perspective is quite different. And you need to understand those nuances, which is the reason why a lot of brands really struggle breaking into some of these new geographical markets particularly outside of the, the, I guess, the traditional Anglo-Saxon world of North America and, and Europe. Um, so having a trusted guide through that process is really important as well. Danny Lee, everybody. It's great to have you on. The Chief Triage Officer to Outdoor Sports Brands, the CFO for Global Banks who can plant a gnarly turn or trick, whatever it may be. We haven't actually seen him. So we'll take his word for him that he can actually do this stuff. But he sounds he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Where do we find out more? Send us to your website so or wherever you want to take us so we can learn a bit more about you and reach out if we like, you know, what we heard in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, maybe that potential match for that early conversation with you, taking yep. it forward. Where do we go? So go to fluidstate.com, um, F-L-U-I-D-S-T-A-T-E.com. Uh, you can find all my details there or Danae L, D-A-N-A-Y-L at fluidstate.com. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.